0: Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, I'm your host, and this is episode number 178, and it's uh, part number 12 of our series, Instant Replay, where we're looking back on some of my favorite episodes, some of your favorite episodes uh, from the last three years of episodes. And we're about halfway through the series, a little bit more, we're going to have 20 Episode. We're trying to do like a top 20 list, and I've said this before, but I'm realizing I have about 30 that I'd like to fit into the 20, Uh, but I don't think that's really mathematically possible unless you know of some brain-bending way to make that happen. (laughs) Let me know. But top 20, it'll take us uh, to the middle of January, and then we will start uh, with some new and fresh heresy (laughs) coming up in twenty. 22. So buckle up and uh, and hold on. Some of the episodes are already recorded. Uh, they're sitting there anticipating their release, and uh, we have some good stuff on the horizon. But today we're looking back on an episode uh, where I talked to the one and the only N.T. Wright, one of the top uh, theologians and scholars in the universe. Um, I was really surprised he said yes to me. It was one of those people, like I email people all the time, and ask them to come on the podcast. I don't really get that many no's, believe it or not. Uh, But I was expecting for sure to get a no from N.T. Wright. And I sent him the email, I remember, and he wrote back and said, I would love to do it. I'm just really busy. So I'm like, oh, well, it's kind of like a maybe. So maybe I'll put him on the back burner and I'll put a reminder in my phone to remind me in like six months to reach out again. So uh, round two, I reached out again, got a no because he was too busy. He's like, I'm, you know, gearing up for retirement, doing, writing, writing a book. He's always writing like 10. He like pumps out books like all the time. So he's like, I'm writing n- another book and I just don't have the time. Uh, so I'm like, all right, well, I'm, g- I'm going to try again. I figure three strikes i out. So I, I go for a third round. And uh, this time he says, yes, let's make the time to make this happen. Thank you for being patient with me. And the guy was like so kind. Like he, w- I was so nervous to talk to him because he's like a really big deal. But he was so easy to talk to, and he made me feel—he didn't make me feel stupid. And that's what I was—that's <laughs> what I was afraid of, because he's like a wealth of knowledge. Like he's written so many books, his brain is like a uh, like a collection of all the theological libraries in the world jammed into one. And I was like so afraid that I was gonna say something really dumb, <laughs> but but I didn't. And he made me feel so comfortable. Like he made me feel like I was talking to him on his level. And I really appreciated that uh, about him. But this this episode went into our series uh, To Hell with Hell, where we kind of rethought uh, the evangelical perspective of hell. I invited, I think, 10 people onto the show all to talk about their thoughts about hell. And a lot of people had very different thoughts. Like some people just thought hell was ridiculous. There is no hell. That's kind of like where I am. Uh, other people are like, yeah, there's definitely hell but I think it looks more like this. And N.T. Wright's kind of like in that category. And other people just have like, you know, just talked about their, uh, how they were raised to think about hell, kind of how they think about it now. Really interesting series. Lots of different ideas were thrown out there, and N.T. Wright uh, threw out some of those ideas to us uh, in this episode. So to hell with hell. And now that series, of course, didn't cause (laughs) any problems in my life (laughs) at all. Uh, But it was a lot of fun. I made some new friends. And you should go back and listen to all the episodes because they were all uh, fantastic. Have you checked out the new YouTube channel yet? Uh, good news. I officially have an official YouTube What If Project Podcast URL. Uh, once you hit 100 subscribers, uh, the YouTube gods bestow upon you the ability to make a custom uh, URL for a YouTube channel. So it's not like YouTube.com. Like 32,000 different letters, words, forward slashes, backward slashes, all these different things. It's just what if it's, uh it's what is it? It's, I can't remember. Oh, it's youtube.com slash C slash what if project podcast. I think the, the C is in there for like custom. So it's youtube.com slash C slash what if project podcast. And that's the official YouTube URL. And if you haven't been there yet, go check it out because there's tons of fun stuff. Um, I dropped some of the videos of the podcast on there. So um, usually when I talk to a, a guest in the past, I didn't do this because my internet connection was really bad, but it's much better now. Uh, but when I when I have a video that I might want to share uh, with the masses, uh, we have the audio obviously on, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, yada, yada. Uh, but I can put the video on YouTube. So like the Barterman videos up there. Uh, Elaine Pagels is up there. There's a couple other ones up there as well, but I'll throw the video on there for you to go and watch uh, the podcast interview, which is, which is like a different dynamic. And then once a week, um, I also release a vlog on there too. It's about 15 to 20 minutes long. Uh, if I get long winded, it's about 20 minutes. If I'm not long winded, it's about 15 minutes If I'm rambling. Maybe it'll go to 22 minutes. I don't know, but it's a relatively short thing uh, where I just kind of throw out some ideas, but whatever it is that I'm thinking about uh, in the moment or thinking about over the course of the previous week, and I release it to patrons first, and then uh, I release it to the masses uh, the following Wednesday. The masses of <laughs> people. <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> the following, the following uh, Wednesday. So I head over there and check it out. Uh, give it a subscribe if you would. Uh, like some of the videos. Dislike them if you hate them. That's cool, too. I- I'm-, I'm cool with that. Uh, Head over there and check it out and uh, share it with your friend. I would really um, appreciate it. I'll put the link in the show notes. Also in the show notes, uh, we have, what else is in there? Let's see, look at my notes here. Oh, Patreon, patreon.com slash whatifproject and buymeacoffee.com slash whatifproject are two places to go to support the show uh, financially. So if this has encouraged you, uh, inspired you, pushed you forward in your faith, that's a place where you can go to support the show um, all the money, like I, I've said before, goes to help us pay for our our bills, groceries, the mortgage. I quit my job of 11 years to do this, to work on the craft of this. I'm trying, trying my best uh, to, to really make something special with this. I've been doing this for three years now. Um, I went to school, I got a Master of Divinity, pastor churches, got a doctorate, I uh, wrote a dissertation about how the church can use social media and technology to do this kind of stuff, to build community in a virtual world. Can it be done? Uh, the pandemic shown us that it can be done, and I'm trying to do it here with the podcast. So my wife works in the mornings. I'm home with our daughter. She comes home in the afternoon. I do some work for this. I've got some social media gigs that I work on, and uh, life is good. So if if this has encouraged you, support the show if you can. Uh, Patreon and buy me a coffee, two places to do it. Links are in the show notes. Check it out. Uh, special music today is from Forrest Clay. He's releasing a brand new album uh, called Recover. And some really special music on there. He has um, he has deconstructed. He's reconstructing. He, he was born, raised, brought up in the evangelical world. And uh, he's rethinking it all, right along with you and me. And so as you rethink your things... As you rethink your life and your faith, uh, flip on some forest clay tunes and he will help you he will help you make sense of things. Uh, his music really puts words on a lot of feelings that you might have, and so I'll just leave it at that. I'll uh, listen to the music and see for yourself. So all of that to say, my friends, that's all I got. Uh, this is episode number 178, part number 12 of Instant replay, My conversation with who's that guy? anti right enjoy oh,
1: when did we lose our way when the-
0: Friends, you have picked a crazy good day to stop by the podcast uh, because today we're sitting down with one of my all time favorite writers and thinkers who has made a huge impact on my faith journey. Uh, you and I know him as Professor N.T. Wright. So, Professor, welcome to the podcast, my friend. It's an honor to talk with you.
2: Thank you. My pleasure to be with you.
0: Thank you. So, I'm going to be really honest with you. Um, I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would have the opportunity. Uh, to talk with with you, and so as I prepared for our discussion, I was combing through my many books of yours, uh, going through highlighted sections and notes in the margins, trying to figure out. Now that I have the opportunity, what on earth do I want to ask <laughs> this man? And so, uh, thank you, first of all, for uh, being patient with me because I know we went back and forth trying to land on a on a topic before we finally That's did. Fine. That's fun. That's fun. So, th- thank you. And, uh, truth be told, i have I have enough questions to fill up like a hundred episodes, but i have I have you for like forty minutes, so I'm going to do my best to uh, to narrow okay. down my options. But before we jump into all the good stuff, uh, could you maybe give us a quick, I don't know drive by tour of your story, maybe for those who aren't super familiar with your work, uh, who are you? What do you do? the the highlights?
2: Yeah, well, I'm uh, English, as you can hear in my voice. I was born and bred in the northeast of England. The county of Northumberland is a beautiful county. It corresponds to Maine in the United States. In other words, it's the top right-hand corner of England. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, it's the border county with Scotland. And that means a lot to me. Um, I, I, was, I grew up with the sea to the east and the mountains inland, and both of those things are part of who I am. And I think part of who my wife is as well, though she grew up at the other end of the country. Um, we, we both love the natural world. Um, I studied in Oxford University, where I'm now living, um, in uh, the late 1960s and early 70s. And I studied classics, uh, Greek and Latin classics and ancient history and the philosophy. And then I switched and did a second bachelor's degree in theology, and then I did a doctorate, and uh, that was in Pauline Theology, and at the same time, I got ordained as an Anglican priest, and I worked as an assistant college chaplain, and then a full-time college chaplain in both Oxford and Cambridge, before then teaching um, uh, as a professor in McGill University in Montreal, and then back again in Oxford, and then I went into full-time church work though with a strong academic component on the side with various jobs ending up as bishop of durham from 2003 to 2010 then the last 10 years i've been professor in st andrew's university in scotland which is um that part of scotland is very like my native county of northumberland between the mountains of the sea again and then my wife and i are in the process of uh, establishing our new home here in oxford one more time and uh, that's quite exciting. I am being an assistant, sort of senior research fellow at Wycliffe Hall, which is the one of the Anglican seminaries in Oxford, uh, where our youngest son is actually studying for the ministry right now. Oh, so wow. uh, th- that's that's all very exciting. And huh. um, being back this far south in in England, it's rather like somebody, I suppose, in America who had moved out to say the Oregon coast and then finds themselves transported suddenly back to dc or or maybe chicago or somewhere mm. and think, oh my mm. goodness yes it's the big city again here we are right. To find right what this would like but we're enjoying that we're meeting up with a lot of old friends and making some new ones and in the meantime my work has proceeded oxford is a great place we live within five minutes walk of the bodleian library which is one of the greatest libraries in the world and mm. uh, there are some splendid professors and Um, students and graduate students around the place and there's really too many do you want to want to be able to sit down and have lunch with a different one every day um not possible so um i'm hoping to to finish some of the writing projects which have been waiting around for a while including particularly the commentary on Galatians, which i'm supposed to finish quite soon now Um, so uh all systems go really and we um we're, we're, we're having a lot of fun trying to get on top of our new life. And that's, that's really where we are.
0: You have a few different balls in the air. <laughs> oh, sounds yeah, like, as, usual, for sure. as usual. So how <laughs> do you, I've always wanted to ask you, how in the world do you do uh, the amount of things that you do? Because you write, you teach, you have internet courses that I see popping up on my Facebook page um, all the time that you record. How do you find the time to do all the things that you do?
2: Well, it's just a matter of being quite disciplined with the diary and Mm. um, and not doing a lot of extra things. I mean, for instance, I watch very little television. Um, My wife and I will occasionally watch um, one of our favorite quiz shows, and I will watch occasional sporting events where there are teams that I want to uh, catch up with, but um, very little other television. And uh, I don't listen to as much music as I would like to. I love music, especially classical music, but I can't work with classical music on because it it comes into my mind and I'm thinking about the music rather than what I'm supposed to be reading or writing. So um, that all has to be sort of structured in, into the diary and you say, okay, this evening we're going to this concert or whatever it might be. Um, Also, uh, when you get to my age, I'm in my early 70s now, Um, I have read quite a lot of stuff over the years, and I have thought quite a lot about various things I want to say, and I can sort of take some shortcuts. I know my way around the literature of my own specialist subjects um, reasonably well, although, of course, there's always more coming out, and there's always undoubtedly things that I've missed. But um, but that means that when I am thinking through something that I want to say, either in a lecture or in a book, um, I can often sketch it quite quickly and then see my way through and I write quite fast Um, and the great thing about of course having computers is that one can write fast and then go back through it on screen and correct it and, and put new things in or pick out words that don't belong whatever and you can produce a clean text much, much faster than you could when I was a graduate student, where everything had to be done longhand, then typed out, then probably typed again because of all the mistakes, etc. Right. So, um, I, I, have, I have benefited from um, the, the technological aids that have come our way in the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. So uh, no secret, really, I, I get up early in the morning, I say my prayers, I get on with the day and I enjoy what I do.
0: It sounds like you just have, you have a very rigorous schedule, which is something that i I definitely uh, uh, quite
2: quite helps. rigorous yeah. yes yes yeah. I, I mean, I learned early on um, one of my mentors when I was a teenager emphasized what St. Paul says in Colossians about redeeming the time that we are only given so much time and it 's always liable to be snatched away from us, and we have to buy it back, we have to redeem it, in other words. If, you've, if you know you're going to have half an hour waiting on a railway station, be sure that you have something sensible to read or some notes to make in the notebook, rather than just looking around and whiling the time away. Now, of course, there is a time for smelling the flowers, for um, doing nothing in particular, etc. But most of us, most of the time, could be actually using our brains and developing ideas and catching up with a bit of reading or whatever. And that's what I try to do.
0: That's good advice. So let's jump into some uh, questions. Your your latest book uh, was written with Michael Byrd and it's uh, about a thousand page book called the new Testament in its world. And uh, you, you help readers and I'm proud to say, by the way, that I'm about, uh, I would say 200 pages in. So I'm making my way way through it. Uh, And you help readers kind of step into this, this context of the early centuries of Christianity in order to, uh, better understand, maybe grasp what's going on in the various letters and books that we have in our Bibles. That's mm-hmm. you think that's mm-hmm. like a fair a fair synopsis?
2: Uh, absolutely. That, that's what the book is all about.
0: Okay. So I want to read a quote for you uh, from the first chapter, then ask you to expand on it maybe a little bit. Uh, you say, the New Testament is history and literature and theology all at once, and we should not try to reduce it to any one of these at the expense of the others. A close mm-hmm. reading of the New Testament will involve the messy business of history, the hard work of literary criticism, and the arduous task of theological reflection. Now, I grew up in a very conservative, uh, evangelical at times, very fundamentalist setting, where our understanding of our theology pretty much took precedent over all of those other things. And so for me, as I got older, I noticed that created a little bit of a mess, because I often took verses at literal face value, had very little regard for the history or the literary genre in which the verse was written. And so I was wondering, could you maybe share with us a little bit about why um, history, uh, literary criticism and theology are important? And maybe maybe give us an example or two uh, of what can happen when we emphasize only one of those things and sort of push the other ones to the back burner.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, I, I think what, one of the obvious things is, as you say, people, uh, who are not used to reading first century texts can easily mistake what is glorious picture language for um, a literal description. The favorite mm. example might be from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul talks about uh, what is sometimes called the rapture, um, or he uses the language of the rapture. And uh, people have said, oh, Paul is is predicting that one day we will be um, caught up into midair because Jesus will be coming down and we'll be going up. Now, um, it is extraordinary to me how people take that in that way because actually the passage uh, so clearly combines three quite different strands. It's, uh, Paul is describing the indescribable by drawing on biblical imagery. So he's Jesus coming down. his picture of Jesus coming down is modeled on Moses coming down the mountain in the book of Exodus, the trumpet blast and so on. And his picture of the saints being caught up in the air is straight out of Daniel chapter 7, where the one like a son of man who represents the people of the saints, the most high, is brought upwards to sit beside the ancient of days on his throne. And in neither of those should we think that Paul is intending this to be something that you could capture with a video camera. It's just that uh, what he is talking about, as he says at various points in his letters, is the final coming together of heaven and earth. Um, which means that it won't be a matter of going up or going down. In Ephesians 1:10, 1, one of the great verses in Paul, he says that God's plan is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And we have separated them out so that we think we have to leave earth and go to heaven. But actually, when you look at Ephesians 1, when you look at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, where he describes a very similar scenario to 1 Thessalonians 4, when you look at Philippians 3, verse 20, where he talks about we are citizens of heaven and from heaven Jesus will come. And he doesn't say to take us back to heaven. Jesus comes to transform this present world and us within it. So that's how we have to read 1 Thessalonians, which is kind of sandwiched in the middle between 1 Corinthians and Philippians in terms of its theme. And the the third theme in, in 1 Thessalonians is the meeting with Jesus and, and that's not taken from the Bible. It's taken from the very well-known imagery. If Caesar or some great nobleman is arriving at a city, the leading citizens go out to meet him, not in order to stay out there in the, in the countryside and have a picnic and then send him away again, but in order to escort him royally into the city. And, and that's, that's mm-hmm. Paul's idea. And as usual, Paul can combine these different um, themes and metaphorical images. I mean, I've often pointed out to people, he says at the beginning of the next chapter, 1st Thessalonians 5, that the thief is coming in the night, so the pregnant woman is gonna go into labor, so you shouldn't get drunk, but you should stay awake and put on your armor. And you know, this makes no sense whatever in terms of literal <laughs> description. It makes all the sense of the world in terms of um, how uh, vivid literature works. This is a combination of designed to challenge you to thinking differently about all sorts of things. Now, of course there is a great deal in the new testament which is meant to be literally historically true jesus of nazareth was crucified under pontius pilate he did uh, announce god's kingdom etc cetera, etc cetera. these are not metaphors for something else although we can't speak without metaphors everything we do is it comes laden with metaphors um so it's it's partly learning to recognize the metaphors learning to recognize the ways in which our own modern traditions um like the fundamentalist tradition which you describe have uh, deceived us into thinking that we've got hold of what's being said whereas in fact nobody in the first century would have read it like that um, this, is, this is obviously true with the book of revelation as well which is very gloriously lurid apocalyptic imagery the lion who is also a lamb who has a uh, sharp sword coming out of his mouth, et cetera, et cetera. Um, th- this would make a whole lot of sense to people in the first century. And we have to go through quite a lot of hard work, as it were, to decode it so that we understand what was originally meant. So there are always debates. But in order to have those debates, you have to do the history. You have to say, mm-hmm. how did people in that world think? What, what are the controlling stories that they had in their heads? Um, which which ways were their minds working, what were the key symbols of their worlds. So that, yes, I too grew up in churches which really didn't bother too much about the first century history. Little mm-hmm. dabs of it here and there, like, oh, the Pharisees were a very strict text of the Jews or something, end of conversation. Well, the Pharisees are more interesting than that. And the more we know about the Pharisees and others, the more we can then see about Jesus and Paul in relation to them. So For me, plunging into the world of first century history um, is a way of making sure that we are allowing the Bible actually to speak as what it is rather than what it isn't. And the same with literary criticism. When we actually look and see what sort of a book a gospel is, without assuming that all the four gospels in the canon are the identical sort of book, but they, they have a lot in common compared with all the other books. Um, then we can see that it's a very interesting mixture of Jewish story. I mean, all four Gospels, are, um, by, the, by the way they structure themselves and introduce themselves, they are clearly saying, this is where the great story of Israel, that you know from the older Hebrew Scriptures, that the great, this is where the great story of Israel reached its intended goal. Um, And you can see them saying that. But so many Christians in the modern world have read the Gospels without any thought for that at all, and often have read them in order to try to answer 18th century questions about did Jesus really think he was divine and that sort of thing. Whereas if we let the Gospels be themselves, they will tell you the answers to all those questions, but they'll come at them in a much richer and more multidimensional way. So anyway, I could go on about it all day. As you say, the book is quite long, but um, <laughs> I, I have discovered for myself, I mean, you know, when I was young, people used to say to me, ah, the great thing to do is study the Bible and then come back and tell the church what, what's really in it. And I've tried spent the last 45 years trying to do that. And I found, to my um, astonishment and sometimes disappointment, that many in the church don't actually want to know what the bible really says they prefer the interpretations they grew up with or that they've come to for themselves that's for sure
0: (laughs) Sure. do you have any any thoughts about like how can the average person know like if they're reading their bible maybe they're reading in the gospels um you know what's literal versus what's not like you hear a lot of people talk about how they think like the miracles are literal other people say they're not they're meant to show they're meant to paint some sort of a picture you know the when Jesus cast out demons, like, should the average reader, like, should we have something next to us as we read our Bible, such as the book that you just uh, gave us, this thousand page book? Like, should we have like a tool with us as we read? Is there any tip or trick you have to notice like any kind of radar that could go up when you're reading something that says, oh, this might be not literal. This might be more.
2: Yes. Um There are, there are many passages where one wants to Uh, one wants to have a careful think about that. I mean, you know, when Paul in Galatians says um, that you were so affectionate to me that you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me, some mm. people think, "Oh, this means he must have had a problem with his eyesight." Um, I don't think that at all. I think it's it's a a regular metaphor f- that, that that we might say, you know, "Oh, I'll bite your hand off for that offer." Well, of course, mm. you're not actually going to bite the person's hand off, but <laughs> right. we we right. know what they mean. Yeah. It means I'm I'm so eager to shake your hand on this deal that I'm actually in danger of biting it off. Um, mm. And nobody in their right mind thinks you mean mean it literally. So so learning how the language works is an it's an ongoing business but but you always have to be suspicious if somebody says well we think it's a miracle well, you might think it's a miracle but actually it's a metaphor for the fact that jesus loves you so much or something like like say jesus walking on the water or stilling the storm i once heard a theologian say oh that doesn't mean jesus actually stilled a storm it's just a picture language way of saying that if i have a storm in my heart jesus can still that and I want to say well yes if i do have a storm in my heart Jesus can still that, but I think the reason I know that is that I think that the gospels intend us to understand that this really did happen and the disciples really were shocked and astonished by it because it didn't fit their world the way they knew it, and that it's a sign, if you like, of new creation, of God's victory through Jesus over the dark forces that are represented by the sea. So and, and part of our difficulty here is again an 18th century difficulty that we think we know what literal truth means. And people often say, oh, of course, in the ancient world, um, they didn't have our modern standards of history. I want to say, our modern standards of history, what's, what's that all about? The question of what is history is itself a very contentious and difficult issue. And any serious historian knows that history demands a use of the imagination, you have to think into the minds of people who think differently from yourself, you have to figure out human motives and make guesses at them, etc. That's how history works. Um, and history doesn't consist of an accumulation of all the things that you would see if there were a video camera on every street corner in the entire world. Mm. That, that wouldn't be history, that would just be an unreadable chronicle. Um, And most of it would be very boring. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Nothing nothing much would be going on. Um, so, So I think we have fooled ourselves. And it's very much the rationalism of the 18th century that I blame for this. And many, many Christians on both sides of the Atlantic get caught up in that and think that they have to produce a rationalist apologetic to answer the rationalist skepticism. and and that's you know we do have to give an apologetic but we have to beware lest we get drawn down into the false either ors and that's where this tripartite structure of history literature and theology can really really help because we've got to have all those in play at once and um, i think throughout church history people have known that the bible is both very accessible at one level and quite teasing and deep and difficult and challenging at other levels, it would be surprising if, if it weren 't because God wants us to what God wants us to grow up um, Paul says you 've got to be adult in your thinking there 'd be babies when it comes to evil, but in your thinking, be mature and, and so the Bible helps us to do that by challenging us hang on we haven 't quite thought this one through, and my hope is that this book will be a help particularly to people in church. I mean, it's obviously designed for seminary students or for undergraduate students or whatever, but I hope it'll be a help as well to people in ordinary churches who say, you know, I've been reading the Bible for 10 you know, or 20 years now, and I'm getting quite a bit out of it. But I keep thinking, I think there's more in here and I need to find out what that is. And, and I, I met somebody just like that the other day and I was pleased to be able to get them a copy of this book and say, I think you'll find this will help you forward in that journey, so maybe.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's a very accessible book. I mean, for our listeners, good, if, good. if you're reading lots, your Bible, with, of course,
2: lots, with lots of charts and diagrams and datelines and pictures and so on to help, help it on the way.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's a very colorful book. It's very accessible, I think, to the average person. So having gone through seminary, there's much more complicated books to understand. And I think this is a right. <laughs> easy, easier one for people to grasp. But I think if people bought it and read it alongside their Bible, it would be a real useful tool. For sure. And I think after listening to you talk, it's almost like we have to be careful that we don't force the Bible to answer questions that it might not be asking.
2: Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's that's right. I mean it's it's a tricky one because I get emails from people all the time saying, Dr. Wright, what do you think about this? or I have a friend who says that, or I read a book which tells me that such and such. Um and sometimes there's no way I can answer them because they're quite complicated questions and I'm very busy, <laughs> but, but so I normally just apologize and give them a, a starting point and then leave it at that. But again and again, if I do try to answer some of those questions, it's a matter of, of saying, hang on, hang on, You've got to go back several steps in the argument. What do you mean by this? Where is this question coming from? Now let's walk around the other side and approach it from a different angle. And people, people don't like doing that because they just want to know either this or that. Tell me what it is, then I don't have to worry about it anymore. Well, I, I understand that. But actually, we do need to. We do need to worry about it. We do need to to take the extra task and make the extra task of, of going around the back and doing the homework and looking up the history and so on.
0: Hmm, that's really good. So let's take some of this talk about history, uh, literature, mm. theology, and let's apply it to a specific topic: um, the topic mm. of heaven and hell and uh, God's kingdom. Just a small topic, just something small. <laughs> not
1: doing. Not <too> <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: for me, again, most of our listeners, you know, I was raised to believe that God is God is mad. You know, he's mad at my sin. He's kind of mad at me, and so he punishes Jesus. And if I believe that, I go to heaven. If I don't believe that, I go to hell. And that's obviously a huge theological web that could be untangled but uh for me heaven growing up was you know often referred to as the kingdom of god and it was uh, the place yeah. that i wanted to get to and hell yeah. was whether separation from god or fiery pit eternal darkness whatever that's a place that i want to avoid and i was given you know countless random verses to build this you know they called it a systematic theology you know john 3, yeah. 16 yeah. all the verses from romans that make the roman road know, the imagery from Revelation that you you spoke of before. And and so now having talked a little bit about the role of history, uh, literary criticism, theology, how can those things help us put some kind of a framework around this really big topic?
2: yeah wow 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 this is very central as i'm sure you realize these are not yeah, just miscellaneous yeah. questions on the side somewhere um and the, the first these are is, coming from yeah. a deep place <laughs> no 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 I, I i totally get it i totally get it and though i didn't grow up in a fundamentalist context but the ordinary anglican church that my parents took me and my siblings to um just believed implicitly that there was a heaven and that that's where God's people would go. Um, They didn't stress a moment of conversion. It was assumed that you would say your prayers and grow in faith and mature in in Christian wisdom from the teaching that one received and that we would read the Bible, etc. And hell was not often mentioned, but it was just kind of assumed that actually there was a dark side um, to, to the question of ultimate destiny, and you'd do better, you know, maybe not to think about it too much, but to be sure that you were on the right track. So it's, it's more that these things get hugely emphasised. And I should say, not just in evangelical or fundamentalist Protestantism, but also in conservative Catholicism. If you look at James Joyce's portrait of the artist as a young man, his description of a, of a fiery Catholic sermon from about 100 years ago, On and on and on and on about what hell would be like, um, driving all the poor boys in the school who were listening to it to go hurrying off to um, say confession and so on in case they died in the night and ended up in the horrible place. Um, You know, I, I really do want to say before I critique it that I'd much rather that people at least started off with some sense of God and of God's relevance and of God's justice than they just drifted through life thinking there's probably no God, so it doesn't matter what I do, so I'm just going to um, do whatever takes my fancy and and who cares, etc. And that, that even though it's distorted and sometimes very damaging to think of God as always mad and out to get you and, and all that, um, I, I think anyone who starts with God and who then has a thing called a Bible which they open and start to read you know, in order to read the Romans' road so-called, you probably have to have open in front of you, um, Romans as a whole, which will go in some rather different directions. And it isn't that the Romans road is wrong. It's just it's only one sort of small part of the actual argument of that great letter. And there's always a chance that if people are looking at Romans, they will discover the rest of that great letter. And that's wonderful. Mm. Mm. So uh, I I don't want to say, forget everything you've ever heard. It's just that I take kingdom of God, because in Matthew's gospel, of course, that comes out almost always as kingdom of heaven. And so people have assumed it is a kingdom that is a place which is in heaven. And I, I assumed that when I was growing up uncomplicatedly, that the kingdom of God stroke heaven is just the place where God's people go to be with him when they die. Mm -hmm. And among the many other reasons why that has to be wrong is that the whole narrative of scripture isn't about us needing to get to be with God and what might stop that happening. It's about God wanting to come and live with us. Mm -hmm. The final scene in the Bible says that the dwelling of God is with humans, not the dwelling of humans is with God. And the uh, opening chapter of Genesis um, begins by God making a world Uh, in order that he can come and live in this world, because heaven plus earth equals God's good chosen reality. That's where God wants to come and live. That's why, as I quoted before, Ephesians 1.10, God's design is to bring together into one things in heaven and things on earth in Christ. And, And that's so that the ultimate vision can be the one we find in a passage like Isaiah 11, that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's a sense of the whole creation being suffused with the personal presence of God, with Jesus and with all Jesus' people in the middle of that. Now, Mm. very different from thinking, oh, we're in this funny place called Earth and we want to get to heaven. And how are we going to do that because we're sinful? Well, actually, God decided that instead of killing us, he would kill his own son. Um, which to many, many people, that not only makes no sense, it makes quite vicious nonsense. Mm. Um, And I understand why, if that's what people think the gospel is supposed to be, sometimes they turn away from it. The trouble is that in turning away from it, they then can miss the much more subtle thing which the New Testament actually is saying, that the kingdom of God means God establishing God's own sovereign saving rule on earth as in heaven. After all, Jesus taught us to pray that in the prayer he gave us, thy kingdom come, on earth as in heaven. Not in heaven as in heaven, on earth as in heaven. And that's where the whole thing is driving. So that at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's quoting Daniel chapter 7, the vision of the Son of Man being exalted to a position of, of power over the whole world. And therefore, Mm -hmm. the church has to go and tell people this good news, that he is now the sovereign one, the Lord. If we don't have that in place, we miss what in the trade we call inaugurated eschatology, which is to say that with the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, something has happened as a result of which the world is a different place. The world is now under the rule of the crucified, risen, and ascended Jesus. Now, people hear that and they look out of the window and they say, it doesn't look like that to me. If Jesus was in charge, we wouldn't have murder and mayhem and shootings and floods and and diseases and so on. It would all be sorted out. And and that just misses the point of what the Gospels are saying. When Jesus says in the kingdom of God, this is how it happens. Blessed are the, the poor and the mourners and the meek and the hungry for justice people and the peacemakers and so on because they are the ones through whom God's sovereignty is being established on earth as in heaven. And that at its best is the story of church history. So to get kingdom of God right, that it doesn't mean going to heaven, and it doesn't mean a military revolution. It means God's people indwelt by God's spirit, going out to transform the world with the power of the gospel. And when people say, well, I don't see that, how does that work? I tell them to read John Ortberg's book, Who Is This Man?, which is like a church history, looking at what the church has in fact done throughout history and saying, so who is this man who's in charge of it all? How does that work? So that about the kingdom of God, when you get that right, then heaven is God's space, which is designed to be ultimately merged, fused with our space. The Mm. new heavens and new earth will be a new creation, but it will take everything that is true of heaven and earth at the moment, everything that is that does reflect the power and love of God rather than the corruptions which we have introduced into God's world, and God will bring that all together into one. Um, C.S. Lewis saw this very well when his pictures of heaven in his book, um, The Last Battle, for instance, or in his, um, uh, his book, The Great Divorce, the picture of, of the heavenly country there is that it's more physical, more real than the present earth that we know. It's not that it's mm-hmm. less physical, as though it's, as we wrongly say, spiritual, in other words, non-physical. No, it's more real, more solid than we can even begin to imagine. It's immortal physicality, and that's what we're promised in the resurrection. So that the heaven-hell contrast really doesn't help us, because the Bible normally doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't go on about heaven-hell, heaven-hell. It goes on about heaven and earth, that they're supposed to be joined together. That then leaves us with the question, so what is God going to do when people say no to him, when people say, I don't want to worship you, I want to worship idols because they give me a quick shot of pleasure and that's what I want, um, or they enable me to have power over other people and that's what I want, um, instead of submitting myself to Jesus' lordship um, because that's going to cramp my style. Then it seems Mm -hmm. to me that God will again and again say to them, are you sure? Let me put this from another angle. Here is Jesus, here is his love, here is of the creation that you see all around you do not want to be part of my whole glorious new creational project and I believe as humans we have the power and indeed the right to say no I don't want to be that sort of a person who will be an image-bearing human being and I believe that eventually God with grief will validate that decision on behalf of those who've made it and I hate to say that because I'm talking about people that I know and love And uh, also, I'm looking in the mirror and saying, are you sure that you're on track? Are you sure that you are actually not just deceiving yourself? That There is a prospect of final loss, but I don't think that prospect is well served, or rather our awareness of that prospect is well served by the traditional pictures of hell and by the traditional easygoing antithesis of heaven and hell. And again, I'm afraid to say we have... The last few centuries of Western culture to blame for this, really, ever since Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, ever since Dante's um, uh, Heaven, Hell, and Purgatory, um, Western culture has been uh, fixated on this either or of heaven and hell in a way that Eastern culture, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, simply hasn't been. And that's really interesting, and we should think more about that. That's a quick tour of kingdom of God in heaven and hell. And there's much more I could say, but that'll probably do just for starters anyway.
0: Do you think that there's, like in your opinion, is there any any way or any reason to hold out with some kind of a hope that, you know, maybe in the, in the end there's an opportunity for um, maybe people on the other side of this life to um, say yes to God? And I ask that because like I think of in Revelation, there's that verse and I don't remember where it is. You, you you probably remember, but it says that the gates of the new Jerusalem will never shut. And that's yeah, that, that's been an that's image true. in my head that I've always held on to, just of some kind of hope that maybe there is an opportunity later on for people to see, like, wow, you know, my eyes are fully opened and I do want to say yes to this.
2: Yes, it's very difficult because the picture in Revelation 21 and 22 is, from one point of view, I think quite definitely a picture of the ultimate future. But Mm. at the same time, I think it's a picture which is also about something which has, in principle, strangely already been inaugurated, that with the coming of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit, the new Jerusalem is... um, it's it's the heavenly city but it's already been joined to earth in secret it's you know we are the pilot project the church is the pilot project of this new community and so some of that some of that imagery i think does relate to what's going on already however i, I totally agree and i've always been struck by the next line or just immediately after the bit just quote where it says that in the middle of the streets of the city, there's, there's the river of the water of life with the, um, the tree of life growing, growing fruit um, on either bank. And it says the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And that's mm-hmm. a wonderful image about God's project of bringing healing to the world. You know, I'm speaking at the moment in the middle of this coronavirus epidemic, and, and we're actually thinking about the nations needing healing, not just individuals, but the nations needing healing. Mm-hmm. And, and so th- that, that remains enormously important. And I don't think we can second guess how and when um, God intends to do that. But I also do notice, um, you know, what one, one, one has to say, the if you like, the other side of that, that, that outside, uh, this is Revelation 22 verse 15, outside of the dogs, that's an image in the book of Revelation, and the sorcerers, and the fornicators, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and anyone who loves and makes a lie. That's a a hugely serious thing. Yes, the gates of the city may be open, but there are certain categories of people who simply can't get through those gates. And if people say, this is the way I want to um, organize my world around those things, then they are in their very nature. It's not that this is an arbitrary list of things that God happens not to like. It's that they are all denials of God's good creation. And the new creation is the good creation, come of age and complete and entire and never again to suffer a fall. And anyone who embraces those ways of life, those lifestyles... um. It, it, it's 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 not an arbitrary impossibility as though God has said, okay, here's a list of 10 sort of things I don't really want in here. It, yeah. It's just a complete and utter impossibility. In the same way that somebody who is paranoid and is committed utterly to disbelieving what, say, a prime minister or a president or a pope or whoever it is says, they, they will never hear the truth if that person should say it because they're already committed to disbelieving it they've shut themselves up now that may be a bad example because we do these days disbelieve most things that prime minister <laughs> and president have said. um right. but, but so, i mean but there will there would be other examples or say somebody somebody who's really sick and the doctor comes to the house and the doctor really does have the right medication for them to make them better and they say no no i don't trust that doctor um the last time he was in here um my mother died or whatever i'm not having any and and So they die too, because they don't trust the doctor who is giving the medicine. So when God says in Revelation, here is the medicine, here is the new world, please take it as a free gift. If somebody says, no, I don't want that because I'm going to stick with my lifestyle, whatever it is, then, well, sorry, by definition, you are outside the gate. And as Paul says in Galatians 5, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, which doesn't mean going to heaven. It means this ultimate state of God being king on earth as in heaven.
0: Hmm. You know, from what you're saying, it, we've, we've made heaven and hell to be this this dichotomy, this black and white, either or yeah. scenario. But in reality, it's a lot
2: it's a lot messier for lack of a better well, word than that. It's a it's, lot bigger. It's a that. lot it is a lot messier, partly because and you know, this is the sort of the, the, the slow, sad wisdom of age speaking in my early seventies. A lot of people who one knew in the days of one's youth who seemed to be way outside with no sign of faith or hope whatever, you realize that actually there was a glimmer of something which now over the years has been fanned into a flame. Hallelujah. Likewise, Mm -hmm. there are some people who really did seem to be absolutely um, on fire, who then have rejected it all and gone away and thrown it all out the window. And so you you have to live with the messiness of the real people that you know. And then the other thing which you mentioned a little while back, the idea that in order to be sure of going to heaven, what you have to do is to say a prayer saying "I believe that Jesus died in my place" and then you yeah. will go to heaven. Yeah. That's a that that is a grievous distortion of Paul's doctrine of justification by faith, um, as though that particular statement of belief is enough um, to justify you forever and ever. Amen. Now there is a doctrine of justification by faith of course there is and i've spent a certain amount of my adult life writing about it and teaching Mm -hmm. Um, and it's 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 wonderful and vivid and, and it's it's what i what i rely on day by day but um it doesn't work in that simplistic way and many many people in pastoral ministry in this country and in america have said to me that there are a lot of young people who've been deceived by that and to thinking that because they, quote, said a prayer, unquote, when they were 12 or 13 or 14, and then were told, right, you are now saved, you are definitely going to heaven, nothing you can do can stop that, um, and therefore don't even think that you've got to learn how to behave yourself, because that would be to add your own works onto your, your faith. And so they are quite happy to live an immoral life, because they've been taught that that really doesn't matter, because they've said a prayer and they are now justified. Now, St. Paul would be absolutely horrified by that, (laughs) Um, but that just shows you the distortion into which we've been driven by some of our traditions. And, And it takes quite a long time to unscramble those traditions and show where the distortions have come in. Fortunately, the New Testament itself read, yes, in its historical, theological and literary context, will put you straight on this if we will let it do so. Mm.
0: I want to segue quick, because I know we're running short on time, um, into your book, Surprised by Hope. And I want to read for you a a quick uh, quote, and just if you could comment on it for me. And for our listeners, this book is really where um, he goes into detail about heaven and hell and the kingdom of God, Mm -hmm. the afterlife. So that's a great book to pick up. I'll put that in the show notes as well. But you say this, God is unitedly committed to set the world right in the end. Uh, The doctrine, like that of resurrection itself, is held firmly in place by the belief in God as creator on one side and his goodness on the other. Uh, That setting right must involve the elimination of all that distorts God's good and lovely creation, and in particular, of all that defaces his image bearing human creatures. Not to put too fine a point on it, there will be no barbed wire in the kingdom of God, and those whose whole being has become dependent on barbed wire will have no place there either. I'm very intrigued by that last (laughs) statement I (laughs) highlighted in the book, put a big question (laughs) mark next to it. Uh, Talk to me more about this barbed wire idea. What does it mean that God's kingdom has no barbed wire and that those who are dependent on it will not have a place? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah. That image struck me very forcibly the first time I was ever in Jerusalem, which was uh, a little over 30 years ago, I guess now Mm -hmm. in 1989. And I was living there and I was... Um, teaching at the Hebrew University up on Mount Scopus and I was living though in just north of the old city in St. George's Anglican Cathedral. There's some houses in the compound there and I would walk every time I had to teach. I would enjoy walking all the way around the corner and up the hill to Mount Scopus to to do my, my seminar and I would pass many many houses, compounds, um, dwellings, shops, et cetera, which had barbed wire separating them off from one another and the different bits of the city separated off. And I was really struck by, you know, this is Jerusalem. This is mm. the place which for many centuries people have seen as the great city, the, the city of hope, the city of joy, of light, of peace, the city of the great king. And what does the barbed wire say? The barbed wire says, we don't trust each other. We're afraid of each other. Uh, we want to keep you out. We want to uh, keep ourselves uh, secure from you it It speaks very deeply of violence and distrust and so on and so saying there is no barbed wire in the kingdom of God is a way of saying that when God does the new creation, there will be no sense of um, of, of of us and them of uh, of needing to be hostile and uh, needing to be violent about keeping other people out. And that means that those of us who believe that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated with and through Jesus cannot defend the kingdom of God by violent means in the the present uh, or by separating out particularly ethnic groups from one another. And that's one of the great truths of the New Testament that right from the beginning, Jesus says, many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you know, if, if Jesus were to come into many of our churches in Britain or America today, and see all the faces looking exactly the same, uh, not to find a point upon it, he would say, um, please, if you go back and read Matthew 8 again, many from east and west, and we'll sit down at table. And you say, oh, well, there's a church down the road, and the other sort of people go to that church. And he would say, mm. "Um, you're missing the point. This whole gospel is about new creation, which is about people of neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free male nor female. To, to quote Paul, of course, mm. um, <laughs> coming together as a single family. That's what Romans 15 is about, that you may with one heart and voice glorify God, the father of of our Lord Jesus. Um, and that was, that was Paul's great emphasis. And some of the debates about justification that we've had in this last generation or so have actually been avoiding the truth that justification means that when you are a believer, a fully-fledged believer in Jesus the Messiah, you belong in the single family. You don't belong in one branch of the single family, you belong in the single family, alongside people of every race and kindred and tribe and and so that's that's really part of what's going on there and one of the fascinating things to me historically speaking is that the roman emperors would love to have been able to make the roman empire a universal society like that you know everybody under caesar's rule and we're all just one big happy family and of course they never got anywhere near it. You can't do it, because it's only the gospel that will do that. It's only the gospel that will eliminate the mutual suspicion, hatred, distrust, violence, etc. So when I say, no, Barbara, I'm the kingdom of God, that's the vision that I have in mind, very clearly.
0: That's a beautiful picture. And one of the questions that comes to mind as I, as I think about that image is, what do you think the, the average person can do in their everyday life to make sure that they're living without barbed wire? The
2: average church person, oh pastor oh of a church, what does it look yeah. like to take down the yeah. barbed wire? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm not stupid and naive about this. We have a mm-hmm. lock on our front door because we live in the middle of a city and there's all sorts of people walking or cycling or driving past our front door day and night. And I have a family. especially when the grandchildren are staying, I don't want miscellaneous strangers coming in at two in the morning. Thank you very much. I I have a responsibility. And some people would say, well, you extrapolate up from the lock on your front door and actually the barbed wire is very useful for the identical purposes only on a larger scale. And in part, I get that, that we live in a violent world, we live in a world where there are major hostilities. The problem comes when people kind of relish that and use the fact of those hostilities as ways of increasing their own power rather than looking after people, increasing their own wealth rather than sharing it with others, etc., etc. So I think uh, we need to remind ourselves that from the very beginning, the church had as its DNA, as as its agenda, to be a reaching out community, to be an educative community. Many early Christians were illiterate, and the church taught them how to read and write so they could read the Bible apart from meals, The church was a healing community, both healing in terms of praying for people and encouraging and fostering medicine. And the church founded hospitals and hospices all over the, the then known world. And people said, why are you doing this? And they said, well, it's because we're following this person, Jesus and they would give free medical care and free education, all that they could. And that was unheard of in the ancient world. And likewise, they looked after the poor. They were known in the ancient world as providing poor relief. Nobody else was doing it except in families, and the Jews did it for other Jews, but the Christians did it for everybody that they could. Paul says in Galatians, So while we can, let's do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. And the church is constantly to be the reaching outward family. And as the church reaches outward and does all these things and everything else that flows from that, um, and you know, funds, I don't know, literacy training skills and Uh, And and local credit unions for people who can't manage their money and all these things. Many people say, oh, that's so unspiritual. Oh, that's so worldly. You should be teaching them have faith in Jesus. Well, okay, which Jesus are we having faith in? Are we having faith in a Jesus who's going to snatch us away from um, this earth and take us somewhere else so that this earth doesn't matter? Or are we having faith in the Jesus who went about doing good and told people to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as in heaven? When the church is doing the Acts of justice and mercy on the one hand, and the acts of beauty on the other, then the message about God's new creation and about heaven and earth coming together will make far more sense than if that message is preached by a church that isn't doing that. Let me mm. just be <laughs> as, as blunt as that. Yeah. Wow.
0: Well, Professor, this has been uh, extremely helpful. Uh, thank you for challenging us to be kingdom people. And, bless you. Uh, well,
2: thank you very much. It's good talking to you. And, and I, these, are, these are great questions. And I know from the many messages I get, these are questions that many people are asking all the time. Are, so bless you are. and your readers. And I know you mentioned at the min, at the beginning, and perhaps you're going to mention it in either your, your email links or whatever, that uh, a lot of what I've said is, of course, expanded in those online courses, which are at ntwriteonline.org. And we're doing more. there's one I recorded just a wee few weeks ago on second Corinthians, which will be going live in a little while when the editor has finished putting it all together and that's been really exciting. Um, mm-hmm. we've got over forty thousand students in, in over one hundred and eighty countries now i can't believe that that's it's, amazing oh, it, is, it is It is extraordinary, but it's very exciting and uh, uh, a real a treat for me to think that in my old age, some of the things I've been banging on about for a long time are actually getting out to a larger audience. There we are. Uh,
0: well, you have made a dent in the universe, sir, and uh, thank you for that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> thank you, Glenn. Okay, oh, yeah. it's really good talking to you.
0: You as well. You have a great evening. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye, Bye-bye. then. Bye-bye.
2: Bye-bye.
1: Deconstructed these walls and I found a- Where the company line Was the only way to get paid We built a church uncertainty That fears everything against it Where the refugees suffer the wall and reach across the